0: Good morning. Good morning, Walter Spires. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. We're going to continue in our series, Signs of the Times, in Jesus' words. We talked about the sign of Jonah last week. We talked about the first usage of the days of Noah. And today we're going to look at the second time Jesus used that same phrase, the days of Noah. Two different places. We're going to talk about that. We're going to begin to look at some of these signs, what they are. Uh, how they affect us now, how they affected the disciples then, when is all this stuff. So excited to begin down this path, and we're going to be in Matthew 24 today. That's going to be our text. Let me pray and get us started. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we are thankful for that and thankful for the time to be able to come and share it together, dive in together. Lean in and listen to what your Holy Spirit has for us today, and stand on the promise that your Word never ever ever returns void. For Christ's sake, Amen. All right, well, I've given you a little preview of that, so let's just get into it. You know, Jesus is walking and living throughout that small region of the world, he born in, in uh, na- born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, up in the northern section in Galilee. His ministry headquarters was in Capernaum over on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he was in Galilee and Judea through Samaria sometimes, although the Jews hated that because of the Samaritans. We've talked about that. Last time he was over in Perea, which is the area to the east side of the Jordan River. A couple of the tribes, the 12 tribes settled over there during Moses' time. He allowed them to do that. Uh, I can't name off the top of my head. I believe Manasseh was one of those perhaps Gad. But anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, But he ministered over there on the other side of the Jordan as well. Something down on that side is where John the Baptist baptized him. So he's just moving all throughout these regions. And everywhere he goes, he's performing miracles. Uh, Miracle after miracle. Feeding 4,000, feeding 5,000. Raising the dead. Giving the sight back to the blind and The mute to speak and the deaf to hear and all these amazing things, raising paralytics. And yet continually, the Jews, especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would ask him for signs. Rabbi, teacher, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And it's interesting because that's what he's doing, right? He is the sign. He's the sign. And yet they keep asking for signs and he's performing signs all the time. So that's what's been going on throughout his ministry. And the last time when we looked at it, he was in that area called Perea where he was walking and talking with disciples when the Pharisees came and said, give us a sign. And he said, it'll be like the days of Noah because they said, when is the kingdom of God coming? When's it coming? We talked about what that meant, Jesus' presence. The kingdom of God described in a number of different ways by, other, by many commentators and people that talk about things in the Bible, perhaps theologians. But quite frankly, the kingdom of God was the presence of Jesus and everything around that came with it. That's what it's going to be like. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we, we pray for that return of Christ to set up his millennial kingdom and come and reign just as he's promised. And so we're going to see how that dovetails in today. So Matthew 24 is, it's a long chapter. I'm going to be reading a lot to you and then coming back and discussing those points. All right, so let's get started with that and see how far we get this morning. I'm reading in Matthew 24, verse 1. And I'll pause along the way to give you some context and help you understand what's going on. So in the first few verses, it said this, Jesus left the temple area and was going on his way when the disciples came to the point, came to point out the temple buildings to him. But he responded and said to the disciples, do you not see all things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Okay, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Those are the first two verses. And let me just pause there. A couple of very, very important things for us to understand about these verses. The first one are the first few words of that chapter. Jesus left the temple, came out from the temple. That was the last time that the glory of God in the presence of Christ was ever in the temple. That was it. I've been trying to catch up my study in the Old Testament, my reading through, and i am Got through Jeremiah and then Ezekiel. They're very long books. It takes a long time to get through them. But in Ezekiel, notice the other day as I was studying through those chapters, the presence of God, the presence of the power of God left the temple, left that temple before it was destroyed. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed in 586 B.C., utterly destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 but prior to that, we have a verse that talks about when God's glory left the temple. Well, they rebuild this temple in the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild a temple. But it's it's a poor second. Some of the people were so distraught when they saw it, they just were saddened because of, because of the majesty of Solomon's temple and how great it was because David who prepped for it, and Solomon who built it, and God's glory occupied it. It was magnificent. And now they had a a poor shadow of that in Zerubbabel's temple. What we learn over the years, as Herod took over in order to please the Jews, he began to build and add unto the temple and add unto the temple. And so they called it Herod's temple. And that's the temple that Jesus went into when he was worshiping, going in and out. They call that Herod's temple. It was the one that was built by Zerubbabel, survived those years during the Maccabeans and all those revolts and things that went on in the 400 silent years. That's that's the temple of Jesus' day. And your Bible referred to it, or you'll you'll read commentaries that refer to it as Herod's temple. So we have Solomon's temple completely destroyed, Herod's temple now, and this is what Jesus is referring to. So he left the temple, that means the presence of God, Jesus himself, was the presence of God, because he is God. He left the temple. That was the last time that the presence of God would be in that temple. That's an important point. Now, the disciples, I guess, are commenting on it because it was magnificent. Herod had built and and made it really incredible again, lots of different buildings and the way it was done, and people marveled at it, and his disciples did. And then Jesus said to them, here's the deal. Here is the deal. Not one stone here will be left on another. Not one stone of all those mighty big stones that were quarried and set up, kind of like with the pyramids, the way they were were able to do masonry and stonework back through those thousands of years ago was incredible because they had no equipment and machinery like we think about. And yet they were able to do that. It's amazing. But Jesus said not one of these stones of this temple are going to be left on top of the other It will soon be completely destroyed, utterly destroyed, and torn down. All right. That reference, that reference, because now we are in about 33 or so, 33, 34 AD. First temple destroyed in 586, rebuilt all through that time, especially of Herod added to it, and Jesus talking about that temple being utterly destroyed. Well, here's when that happened. I'm going to give you a little history lesson here because I think it's important. Jesus crucified in that 30th time frame. Uh, Matthew probably wrote his gospel in the 40s AD. Paul, John, Peter, all of those were in that, in terms of their living and their ministry, was in that 50s, 60s AD time frame. The apostle John, I just mentioned his name, he lived through then, but he wrote in the 90s AD, almost at the end of the first century. Now, I'm giving you that history because What they what you look for in terms of timing different books of the Bible is what they referred to. Well, in seventy AD, the Jews had been really revolting against the Romans. They were fed up. You know, they, they back in Jesus' time, during that few years of his ministry, they wanted Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah who was a military leader to do one thing. And what was that? One thing only. Throw off the Romans. Help make us free again. We want to be a free people. And yet you see what they did throughout their freedom, throughout all those years of history, when they were disobedient. All the Old Testament except the Torah is on there. Their disobedience. They're, they're moving away from God. They're um, partnering around, whoring around, being playing the harlot with other tribes and people and continually disobeying and defying God until he finally had it. Well, they wanted it again but not for the right reasons. They wanted Messiah to come and throw off those Romans. Well, they had people of those days, the zealots who were always killing Romans, you know, that kind of, kind of guerrilla warfare, sneaking out there. They could not confront the Romans out right because the Romans were powerful and there were thousands and thousands of them. You know, um, a centurion was over 100. And, and so they had no chance there. But they were continuing trying to sneak and kill and do this. And the Romans were finally fed up. And so they started the siege on Jerusalem, which means they surround the city, and just start to starve them to death, and bring them out, build up the siege ramps to just destroy it. Because they've had it with the Jews. They've had it with these rebellious Jews, especially the warring ones, the murderous ones. And they want to destroy them once and for all. And so they began to do that. And in 70 AD, General Titus was sent there. And they destroyed Jerusalem. And part of what they destroyed with Jerusalem, and you can read this as absolute history. It's in history books. If you go back and read it, whether it's Jewish history or Roman history. This is truth. And it's biblical history, just without as much detail. But General Titus, I believe he later became an emperor as well, went and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., that's the destruction Jesus is talking about here, that not one stone will be left on another because they set up this siege. They set up this way to burn it. And it was so hot and incendiary that it burned and the stones crumbled. We read that the stones crumbled. Uh, they just got, it got so hot, they just fell in on each other. And so what was done here in terms of this, and I'll get to this in a minute, we'll look at this abomination of desolation. Oh, I'll wait till we get there. So the, the, the temple was indeed destroyed and not one stone was left on, the, on another and that's in 70 AD. Okay? So the first temple, Solomon's temple in 586 BC, Herod's temple, the one that had been rebuilt, was destroyed utterly in 70 AD just as Jesus had project, projected. Okay? Just as he had projected. No more temple. Temple Mount pretty much barren. Okay, let's pick this back up again now in verse 3. Matthew 24, as Jesus was sitting out, they walked just outside the gate and across the valley. There's a Mount of Olives. It's right there outside the wall of Jerusalem. So this is where this this um, text comes from. Remember, the first one we use days of Noah was when he was walking through that region on the east side of the Jordan, just teaching his disciples, talking to the Pharisees. And all the people that followed him around, as they always did, large crowds following him around, including Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, and, of course, his own disciples. So now he's left the temple. His glory has left the temple once and for all. And in verse 3, it says this. Jesus, sitting on the Mount of Olives, disciples came to him privately. They got away from the crowd and he said, Jesus, tell us when these things will happen. The things that I just told you about, tell us when those things will happen. And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? So now they're going all the way out to the end of the world and the sign of your coming. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. I am the Christ. And they will mislead many people. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For those things must take place. But that is not the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are merely the beginnings of the birth pangs or the beginning of the end. One of the things that we talked about a number of times when Christ was talking about his death, his imminent death and crucifixion, but but then his resurrection his ascension. And the disciples and all those who listened always had this mindset that it would be soon. Because he he made that statement that people still have trouble with today when he said, um, you know, not all of you will taste death, but none of you all will be gone this generation before these things occur. So they thought he's coming right back. And they could live with that. They weren't crazy about the fact that he was going to be killed and Murdered and they would suffer all these things, but but he was promised to, he promised to come again, he promised to come again, and they thought that would be soon, and unfortunately we still await that marvelous and wonderful and glorious return today, two thousand plus years later. In verse nine, he said this. We continue from Matthew twenty four. Then they will hand you over the, the, the authorities, especially the Jewish rulers, the Jewish religious people. Thought they were doing God a favor when they killed Christians and when they persecuted them, threw them in prison. Who is the chief among those? The Apostle Paul. He comes along after Jesus, but that's his chief role. He is, a, he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he's one of these people. The Apostle Paul is part of this persecution. They're going to hand you over to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. And they will betray one another and hate one another. We see the conflict and chaos that Jesus is prophesying that will come even amongst believers and in the church, possibly. Where people start pointing fingers or questioning what he really said. And, you know, as the apostles were dying out and there was no one there to lead them and instruct them, uh, it would become kind of chaotic. And so, those, you know, once you left the 12 apostles and then Paul, the final apostle, and then John, who was the last to go, had been passed along to others, equipping people, just like Paul did Timothy and John did his disciples, Peter did his disciples, to continue to grow in the spirit and understand the word of God, such as they had it then. There was no Bible then. They didn't have that but they had the evidence and the testimonies of those who were eyewitnesses that they passed along. But then people started, all kinds of things came into the church, Gnosticism, and people saying, well, it's not really this, it didn't mean this, and all the stuff that goes on that, quite frankly, probably is what ended up creating denominations today. Everybody thinks, well, I'm right about this, and you're wrong, and baptism ought to be this way, and it ought to look that way, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and all the things that people are fussing and fighting and disagreeing over that is not advancing the kingdom of God. Jesus told us to go love one another, live like he did, love like he did, and bear fruit. And never, ever, ever stop teaching the truth, which is the need for repentance. Because he said, I came to call sinners to repentance. That's his only message. That's the main reason he came. That's the primary message. And the reason he came, John the Baptist said the same thing right before him. They stay focused on that message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message of repentance carries all the way through. It doesn't today in the church, and it should. It's lost. We're afraid to tell people that they are lost sinners in need of repentance. And they are, just as we were. And so Jesus is telling them all these things are going to happen, and some of this will happen even up through this church age, as we call it, Back in their time, he says, see that you're not alarmed because this isn't the end. But it's the beginning of the birth pangs. Many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. We have so many false prophets today, but they had them back then. False prophets have been in there ever since Christ left. And the people stepping up and claiming, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I'm prophesying this. I'm prophesying that. All this stuff. They are false prophets. They are false teachers. Many teachers today. Many teachers today, all these prosperity people, there are false teachers. They're false teachers. God will deal with that, and he'll deal with them specifically. One of the comments that he makes here that because the lawlessness increases, many, the love of many will grow cold, will grow cold, that they will start to think, you know, maybe this was not real. It was a sweet ride while Jesus was here, but after he's gone, And all these things he prophesied and spoke of are coming true, people are getting colder and colder, harder to love those who are murdering, murdering your children, murdering your husbands, your wives, just killing, just indiscriminately the Romans and all these others. They were just murderous thugs. They hated the Jews, hated the Jews, and then hated the Christians who were birthed from the Jews, meaning Jesus. Mm -mm -mm. Their love will become cold. But here's the key. In verse 13, he said this, but the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. The one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. Now, let me pause there for a minute because depending on your theology, there are those who teach the perseverance of the saints, which means that once you are truly born again in Christ, you cannot be lost. You cannot be lost. The Bible teaches that. I believe there are those who teach and there are verses that support it. No question about that. Who teach that you can lose your salvation and regain it, but that you you have, a, there's just ways you can move in and out of that and actually lose salvation. That's a difficult path and passage, but there are some that teach that and believe It does not mean they're not born again on either side of that. They're just talking about whether or not you can or cannot lose your salvation. I believe the Bible teaches, and we'll go through that sometimes, that Christians, uh, true Christians, true born-again Christians will endure to the end, as he said, through this persecution, through all this stuff. Because if you were one of these, quote, Christians or Christ followers who simply ran around with Jesus, and this is a great example, there were a lot of them. But as it got more and more difficult, and as this message got more and more difficult, what'd they do? It said many left him. They thought, this is too hard. This stuff about taking up your cross, that kind of stuff, I didn't sign up for that. I like the miracles. I like the feeding people. I like all the stuff that he's doing. I like the promises of this coming kingdom. That's going to be great. They thought it was then, and it was simply about getting rid of the Romans. You see, it's important to understand what it means to be born again, to be regenerate, as opposed to just knowing about this stuff. I knew about this stuff all of my life. And I walked the aisle and I got dunked and I share that testimony in my most recent book, When the Lost Get Found. It's a story of the prodigal son. It's my story with my prodigal and it's a challenge of your story, your prodigal. And I'm not trying to sell it, but I'm encouraging you to go get it and buy it. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in a number of different places when the lost get found, because it is a story of someone who gets lost, meaning prodigal, and then is later found. That parable that Jesus told, That, and I'll, maybe I'll teach on that sometime and give you the background on the book and all that kind of stuff, but but right now, that's what Jesus is talking about. These who are will grow cold, many would say, let me say it this way, many would say that they never really got it. They never were really sold out to Christ, willing to die with him, as his disciples were and many of his followers. And Judas wasn't. Judas was a disciple and he fell away also. Fell away also. Alright, let's keep going. The gospel of the kingdom, which is what Jesus' message is, shall be preached in the whole world. The whole world is a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Does that mean that's when the world ends? No. Most believe that means that's when the time of the tribulation will begin. That seven-year tribulation period, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, uh, but we don't have enough time to do that uh, and and give it it what it deserves. The gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. We have that today. We can look at that today and say, okay, that's how I look at it. 1948, I just finished in Ezekiel and talked about when the Jews are called back, collected together, God is going to collect his people back together. Well, guess what? After World War II and all the heinous war crimes against the Jews that Hitler and the Nazis perpetrated, at the end of all of that, with millions and millions of Jews murdered, killed, horrible, awful stuff, just hard to watch those things even today of the films and things they have. A few years after that, 1948, the United Nations agrees to allow Israel to come back together, that land of Zion, and Israel becomes a nation again. To me, that's the trigger. That's what it talked about in Ezekiel. God's collecting his people back, he's getting ready. All this stuff is getting ready. 1948 was the trigger point, or one of them in my mind. It's what I think the Bible teaches, and we see it, and we see what's going on. And everybody in the world, including some of these idiot Americans, hate Israel, hate Israel, don't know why, but they do. Even some of their own, and again, that's what happened back all through Bible history, the Jews who fell away. They're not really Jews, like Paul said. Some are Jews, but not really Jews. They're not. They're not. They are not Jews in the sense of the sons and daughters of Abraham who kept the faith, who held on to that promise, just as Abraham did. Those looking forward to the cross, and now those of us looking back to the cross, there are many Jews coming to Christ. They're called Messianic Jews. One of my best friends and his wife are two of those. But They got saved. They got born again in Christ as the real Messiah. This is all part of this stuff going on toward the end. They said... When the, when the gospel is preached to all the nations, and you can make the argument they, today with all the uh, technology and all those things that, that were there, were basically were there. Now, some will argue with us still unreached people groups around the world, and missionaries have been pursuing them for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Missionaries have been giving their lives, sacrificing their lives to carry out the gospel as they believe God said to do it. That's what he said to do. But at that point in time, when that testimony is made available and out there to all the nations, then the end will come. And we look at then coming into the tribulation period, the tribulation period, those seven years. It's just amazing how the scripture ties all together, ties it all together from Daniel to Revelation, hundreds of years between those. So I'm reading again in verse 15, Matthew 24:15. Therefore, Jesus speaking into his disciples only, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The abomination of desolation. There have been two of those so far. And the third one is the one that is the sign of the end time. And let me explain. I touched on this a minute ago. but Let me walk back through. So you'll understand the first one. In that intertestamental period, in those silent 400 years, you you had the Jews that are scattered. That's called the diaspora. They're scattered everywhere. There's no more Israel. There's no more Judah. They're all gone. They're just scattered around. Some have been allowed to come back in and wander in and settle in around Jerusalem and those areas. But they were never a free, independent nation, never, ever, until 1948. And so they did that. They came in and they tried to settle and do different things. There was this time in the uh, would be the second century B.C. There was the Maccabean revolt when the Jews again revolt against the leaders of that time. There was the Egyptians, the Syrians. There were different groups that um, that were in control back then. You had, you know, leaving the Babylonian Empire, you had the Medo-Persians, the Persians. Then you have the Greeks in the 300s. And then the Romans come in, they conquer the Greeks, and the Roman Empire starts to begin in that time as well. So throughout that period, there's a lot going on. One of the, um, this first abomination of desolation occurred in 168 B.C. when we have this. Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, such as it was, and sacrificed a pig. To the god Zeus on that altar, because remember the Greeks had been the ones in power and influence. No, no empire ever left as much influence on the world even today as the Greek Empire. It's interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't that it didn't last that long. Nearly not nearly like the Romans and some of the others, but the Greeks had unbelievable influence in many many areas in our world at, even today. One sixty eight B C. One of the generals, Antiochus Epiphanes, goes to Jerusalem into the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar to the, god, the Greek god Zeus. That is so troubling on so many fronts, but what's the main one? What was the unclean animal that even today, Jews, the religious Jews, don't eat? Swine, pigs. They don't eat that pork. And this guy sacrificed a pig on God's holy altar to a a pagan god, Zeus, well, that's the first abomination of desolation. That's the first one. The second one was when this guy Titus, as I mentioned, when the temple was destroyed and the Roman general Titus went in and they destroyed the temple, the holy of holies. And what we read in that history, that history is that he also did that. He built an altar or placed an idol on the remains of the altar. That's what I'm reading here. He placed an idol on the remains of the altar. So you have these pagans, godless people, entering into the holy of holies or what was left of it, what remained of it, and offering sacrifices in the one hand or placing idols uh, in defiance of Israel and their God. Those are called the abominations of desolation. There's a third one, and the third one is the one that is the most important in terms of end times, these signs of the times, this is the one to which Jesus speaks okay he 's not speaking about this one that happened just you know a few well thirty years or so after he was crucified it's not the one. some people believe it is, and you have some people argue because they don 't believe that there's a rapture and all those kinds of things. Um, they believe that that 's what he's speaking about, but it really isn't because when when Daniel's still speaking about it. Paul, you know, the New Testament refers to it in the other uh, books like Paul and others, Peter, that refer to these things that are going to happen. The temple had not been destroyed yet. The temple wasn't destroyed until after Jesus and in 70 AD. And so that's why we know that many of the epistles of Paul, perhaps all of them, they were all written before this because they never reference the destruction of the temple. And don't you think that if they did, if that had happened, they would have certainly referenced this as a key point in all of human history, especially Jewish history and Christian history that's never once mentioned in their, in their epistles. So Jesus said this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, who's ever on the housetop must not go back down to get things out of his house. Whoever's in the field must not get, go back to get his cloak. Woe to those women who are pregnant, and those who are nursing babies in those days, Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. That's interesting. For, there, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. Then will begin the great tribulation. That's the seven-year period. That's the 70 weeks of Daniel. I may have said seven before. This is 70 weeks of Daniel. It's those seven years. It's the three and a half years. What happens is when the rapt, we believe that, that again, if you're pre-tribulation belief, if you believe there's a rapture, if you believe there's a rapture, when Christ comes and takes the church, the believers, the true born-again believers out of this world, that's called a pre-tribulation and then the rapture. The rapture, excuse me, that's called pre-tribulation the rapture when he pulls us out. Then the tribulation will begin, which is that seven-year period where the Antichrist comes to power and rules in the first three and a half years. Everything seems great, and he's partnered with Israel. Uh, But then the great deception comes, and um, at the end of that three and a half years, this is what he's talking about, the abomination of desolation occurs in the temple because the temple will be rebuilt during that time, and that's when Antichrist and the beast rule and come to power and begin destroying and obliterating worse than anything Hitler ever did. So this is what he's referring to. And this comes when this great tribulation comes. And Jesus makes a comment, if those days had not been cut short to seven years or the last three and a half years, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. They're gonna be people who get saved during the the, uh, tribulation. Now I'm one of these pre-trib rapture believing guys because I think that's what the Bible teaches, but I'm just, I want to believe that way, that we're out of that period of suffering and the horrible stuff that's going to go on. But understand there are those who believe that there's not a rapture at all. And some, you know, uh, well-known preachers preach that, teachers, and some believe that it happens in the middle, they're called mid-trib people. And then some that don't believe it happens at all on millennial. So anyway. Uh, that's way too much to get into today, but I want to understand. So this is what we're building up to. I want you to understand. So here we go. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, behold, here's a Christ. He's over there. Don't believe him or false. Christ. He's over there. Don't believe him or go out to the desert and see him. Don't believe him. These are false prophets, false Christ, and they will rise and they're going to be performing signs like Jesus did. They perform great signs and wonders to mislead people if possible, even the elect, but it's not possible to mislead us and lead us away from Christ if we're truly born again. We're going to hold and we're going to persevere until the end. He said, "Um, just do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And whenever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather, and you're going to be able to see it. When lightning goes, boom, you see it. Everybody sees it. You can see that. When vultures are circling high in the air, you know there's something dead at the bottom, dead at the bottom. That's an implication that you'll be able to see from a distance, and you'll know there was death and destruction below. Running out of time here. Um, let me do this. I'm going to move on down to the passage when he mentions this, because this, this title is The Days of Noah Part Two. He tells him the parable of a fig tree. And he makes a statement in, in um, verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, that's got people up in their arms because, I mean, this generation like Jesus people, those people during that time, well, that's really not what it means. This generation can be, can be translated, and is better translated, this age of men, the age of men. You know, think about that phrase they use in the Lord of the Rings, the age of men. It's an age. It's not just a generation like we think about generation. They didn't think about it that way. The age of men will not pass away, obviously, before these things happen. And he gives them one last one. He says, nobody's going to know when it's coming. Not even the angels know and not even he knows. He says, not even the Son of Man knows, but the Father alone. Then in verse 37, he says this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Second reference. Not the first one. It's the second one. Different place, different time. For in the days of Noah... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does that have to do with us today? Well, a number of things. A number of things. I know I've moved through this quickly. But Jesus is trying to give them a picture of what's going to happen, the timeline. Many people, you know, discuss these things, have different viewpoints on them. I'm giving you one. But understand this. We live in a day that's closer to the end than it ever was. We live in a day when there are false teachers, false prophets. Don't know if there's any false messiahs claiming that yet. That would probably be the Antichrist. Don't know if we'll still be alive. Could be. Could happen yet today. So as Christians, what does this mean for us? Well, a couple of things I want to touch on as we wrap this up. Um, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. Many, many well-meaning people, even in many churches, large churches, are listening to false teachers, false prophets today. They are. They're not hearing the word of God. They're hearing about how they can prosper and live wonderful, great lives of prosperity. <laughs> most of which financially simply fills the pockets of these false teachers. We're going to stand before the Lord God and give an account for that. Whether or not they are saved, I have no idea. There's no evidence of it, but God alone is judge and not Walter Spires. People may say the same thing about me. People's love will grow cold. People arguing and fussing and fighting So We see that all the time now. Denominations against Denominations. What we're seeing today is even within denominations, within the Methodist denomination, they're splitting them, the Baptist denomination, Southern Baptist, they're having all kinds of issues. All these major denominations, the Catholic church, you see, all these things going on, all these conflicts within the church, within what's supposed to be the body of Christ, the beautiful, precious body of Christ, there's conflict and disagreement and warring of the sort and love growing cold and hating one another, spewing on one another. These are exactly the things that Jesus said were going to happen. For you and I, and I don't care what church you're in, if you're not with us, if you're not in a body of Christ that is believing the Bible, teaching the word of God, as he wrote it, as Jesus taught it, understanding the full counsel of God, not just cherry-picking those things that we like, that's the danger today. Again, those are false teachers. Telling people want, they want to hear Paul warned about that, tickling ears. Tickling ears because you're afraid someone isn't going to come back or someone's not going to give you their money or trying to be uh, soft-sell a gospel light, and there isn't one. Jesus didn't teach and preach that way. Paul didn't. John didn't. Peter didn't. None of those people did, nor do I and some other faithful ministers of the gospel. But there are many who are not. You need to stay away from them. Stay away from them. Run from that. Run from that while you can. As people who are born again in Christ. I mean really born again in Christ. Sold out to him. We need to live like he did. Walk circumspect was, I mean, honoring God above all things. Honoring God, blessing God, praising God. That's what Jesus did. He came to glorify God. Are you glorifying God with your life? Are we honoring Christ and trying to represent him well as Christians? Are we working on bearing fruit? Are you trying to understand the word of God and and your testimony so that you can bear fruit? That's what Jesus said, bearing fruit. If you don't bear fruit, it's a sign you really didn't get it. You're not really grafted in the vine. you would be one of those branches that falls off and they throw it into the fire. So, Christian, understand the seriousness of these words, the glorious grace of these words, and yet the severity of these words so that we might live for Christ and take others with us and take others with us. Now more than ever, it's important for us to have that walk with the Lord, talk about the Lord, help people understand why it is we believe, the hope that we have. It is not about political elections, it's not. This nation, we're so tied up in our theology around uh, red and blue and right and left and blue wave, red wave, and all the stuff that we think saving our nation. It is not, it is not. And it's deceiving, you see, it's deceiving people. And it's deceiving people in the church as well. And so, my prayer is that you will understand the truth of this and hold on to it, just like Jesus said. And then, for those of you who are listening, find this, reading it, watching it, however you're receiving this message today, as I always do, I plead with you, plead with you to surrender your broken, sinful life to the Christ who died for you. It's a wonderful thing. It's not painful. it's removing pain. It's removing all these things that are cluttering your life and keeping you standing between you and the cross. Oh please, please don't don't turn this off, don't shut this down till you understand that God sent me to speak to you this morning, wherever you're hearing it, however you're hearing it. God sent me to you uh, He sent me to you I may be the last person. The last evangelist, the last messenger that he sends to you before your time is up and there won't be any more. You have a finite number of opportunities and chances to hear. And I'm one of those who believes that you have the opportunity to hear and to believe and to receive Christ and make that decision for yourself. I pray that you would do that today. I plead that you would do that today for Christ's sake. Father God, thank you for this amazing uh, word, the words of Jesus that give us a glimpse of how this thing ends. We know it's ending. We know that it's ending. We look around the signs and those who are knowledgeable in the teachings of your word see these signs. And we know that every day gl- grows closer to our rapture or your marvelous return, whichever one of these ways of teaching this is absolutely correct. But we just pray, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, Lord, give us the courage to avail the strength of the Holy Spirit within us if we are truly born again, to help people come with us, to help them understand and show them the love of Christ. But never, ever shy away from teaching the truth, which is to help them understand that they need a Savior and why that is. For we were all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, for Christ Jesus, who has saved us from our sin, saved us from ourselves, redeemed us for that time that we look forward to your glorious return for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you and have a great week. To learn more about how you can become a Christian or grow in your walk with the Lord and receive freely of all the biblically-based content we have created or donate to help keep this ministry going strong, go to onlyjesus.life. That's onlyjesus.lise.